Good morning. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. My name is Sam. As I said, I'm the associate pastor here. And together with everybody else here, I'm delighted that you've joined us for worship this morning, especially if you're a visitor, if you're not used to coming to this church or to any church at all. Um, it's a delight to have you with us this morning. Whether you're a Christian or not, worshiping on Easter Sunday is a bit like walking into the engine room of the church. It brings you straight to the beating heart of Christianity. You see, this morning we're celebrating an event in history so momentous, so unique, so earth-shattering in its ramifications that without it, the Bible says, Christianity has nothing to say that's worth listening to. What we say about Jesus hangs on what we say about the resurrection. You lose the resurrection, you lose the gospel. The good news that Christianity proclaims is nothing other than the angelic proclamation to the women at the tomb. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Lose the resurrection, lose the gospel. St. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we, we Christians, are of all people most to be pitied. Lose sight of the resurrection and you lose everything worth saying and everything worth listening to. Now that is a staggering claim. And I know because my skeptical friends are very clear with me about this, that if you're unconvinced about the claims of Christianity, Paul's non-negotiable stance on the centrality of the historical resurrection of Jesus seems startling. How could someone place such emphasis on a historically remote, unrepeatable, and so it would seem empirically unverifiable event like the resurrection? Surely Christianity must rest on something more. Well, in a sense, it does. Christianity isn't a house built on a, on a single stilt, and if you just hack at it away enough, it'll bring the whole thing tumbling down. No, it's not like that. Christianity provides a whole economy of signs, a nexus of interrelated pointers which testify to the reality and rationality of the good news to which the church has borne witness throughout the centuries. You might call the whole complex of these signs or pointers revelation. In other words, the way that God has revealed himself to us. Sometimes God uses natural, ordinary, everyday means to reveal himself to us. And in the Christian tradition, we call this general revelation. The way that God reveals himself, for instance, when we experience a pang of conscience in the middle of the night, or when we reflect on, philosophically on the question of why there's something rather than nothing. Think of Romans chapter, uh, chapters 1 to 3, where Paul is building an argument Appealing to the law written on the heart. 
It's an argument to conscience. Or think of Acts 17, again, when Paul's preaching this metaphysical, philosophical argument to communicate the gospel to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers of Athens. But look, chiefly, God has revealed himself through what the Christian tradition calls special revelation. That is, through his own personal, redemptive, saving activity in history. For example, as he led Israel out in the Exodus and preeminently as he moved into the neighborhood in the person of Jesus Christ. The weight of Christianity doesn't rest on a single stilt. It rests on revelation, the whole complex of pointers and signs that testify to the reality and rationality of Christian belief. When we say that God has revealed himself, we're saying that God speaks, that he's a communicative God. So absolutely fundamental to this complex of signs and pointers that we call revelation is the Bible. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. Scripture holds pride of place in a Christian way of knowing the world because it is the way God has spoken to point to his final word, the Lord Jesus. Reason, conscience, imagination, these are good gifts, but they're marred by the fall, clouded muddied, warped. Scripture is the foundation of our knowledge of God. Now hang with me, because I am going somewhere with this. Now the Bible doesn't tell us everything that there is to know about life, the universe, and everything, and it doesn't intend to. It isn't an astronomy guide. It does not give me my mother-in-law's bouffe bourguignon recipe. It doesn't include the periodic table. What it tells us is everything that we need to know to respond to God as he's revealed himself through Israel to the nations. And it can do this because it's authored by God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. There's no middle here. But that doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to the other ordinary ways that Christianity makes sense of reality. The gift of our reason no less than the Bible, confirms the reality and rationality of the gospel. So, look, if you're under the impression that in Christianity, faith trumps reason, if you're afraid that in becoming a Christian, you're going to be reduced to obscurantism or deliberate naivete, then set aside an evening with a glass of wine or a cup of coffee and set an appointment with writers like Flannery O'Connor or Fyodor Dostoevsky Thomas Traherne, or Dante Alighieri. Consider the cathedral-like splendor of the Summa Theologiae of Thomas Aquinas, or read the great apologists of the second century church like Justin Martyr or Irenaeus of Lyon. I'm not just trying to rattle off names at you. I'm reminding you that Christianity does not despise reason. It's a gift of God. And when renewed by His grace, it draws us into deeper communion with Him and to Uh, into a deeper engagement with and enjoyment of creation. Again, the point I'm trying to make here is that Christianity isn't built on a single stilt. It rests 
on an economy of signs, a nexus of pointers, this irreducibly complex foundation called revelation. Now, okay, why spend a perfectly good Easter morning putting you to sleep with these things? Well, look, if Christianity rests not on a single stilt, but on this robust, confident, fully-orbed foundation on which I'm suggesting to you it does in fact rest. How can the Bible say that without the resurrection, Christianity comes crashing down? This is the dilemma. This should make us consider very carefully what exactly is going on in the resurrection if by losing it, we lose Christianity itself. If the resurrection of Jesus is merely an inspirational story or a bit of cultural kitsch, Christianity is worse than untrue. Not because it undermines general revelation, what we know about God by ordinary means, by uh, conscience, reason, imagination. It doesn't even undermine special revelation. The God of Israel remains the creator of all who discloses his existence through conscience, imagination, reason, and so on. No, what it means if Jesus was not raised is that the one we thought all along to have been the hero of the story turns out, in fact, to have been the villain. In the language of the Bible, if Jesus Christ was not raised by the Father from the grave, he remains under a curse. That's what it means in the Bible to hang on a tree. In the Bible, trees are places where judgments rendered, where God's enemies face divine justice. Consider, for example, this story from 2 Samuel chapter 18. What happens there? Well, Israel's great king, David, has a power-grabbing son called Absalom. You know where I'm going with this? And Absalom leads a rebellion against David. In effect, defying God's anointing of his very human and very flawed father and king. Now, what happens to Absalom as he leads this insurrection? 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 9. Don't have to flip there. I'll read it to you. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Absalom, the one who stretched out his hand against the Lord's anointed, is suspended on a tree, And soon thereafter killed by the Israelite general Joab. And then what happens? Verse 17. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest. And raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone, to his own home. What's going on here? We're witnessing the curse. Which you'll find in Deuteronomy Chapter 21, a hanged man is cursed by God. In the Bible, trees are where God judges his enemies. The one who's hanged on a tree is under a curse. What's even worse is if the cursed man is then thrown under a heap of stones. (laughs) Like the tree 
being laid under stone is a sign of God's judgment on his enemies. It happens to Absalom. We see it again in Joshua chapter 8, verse 29. The king of Ai is hung on a tree, impaled on a tree, and then buried under a great heap of stones. In both cases, the point's the same. He who is hung on a tree, he on whom stones are heaped, that one is cursed by God. So what does this mean for Jesus? If the God of the Bible executes judgment on his enemies by hanging them on trees and laying them under stones, are are you beginning to see why Christians take the resurrection so seriously? If the one who was hung on a tree has not been raised, Christ was not the hero, but the villain. If the one upon whom stones were heaped is not alive again, he was not, in fact, God's son. He was the enemy. And if this is the case, as Paul says, we Christians are of all people most to be pitied because the curse has not been lifted. And as Paul says, we, we who trust that our restored relationship with God hinges on Jesus being who he said he was, doing what he said he came to do, We're still in our sins. But we are not still in our sins. Listen to me. This is the Easter proclamation. The good news is that the one who was hung on a tree and laid under stone, he is risen. He is not here. The tomb is empty. The seal is broken. The one who is hanged on a tree, laid under stone, who suffered the judgment of God, is shown to be the righteous one, the king of Israel, the pure and spotless lamb of God. The resurrection is no symbol. To borrow a line from Flannery O'Connor, if it's only a symbol, to hell with it. Or as John Updike puts it in his poem, Seven Stanzas at Easter, make no mistake, If he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. If he who hung on the tree and lay under rock has not risen, to hell with it. If the resurrection is only a parable, a metaphor, an analogy, to hell with it. But in fact, as Paul says to the Romans, Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up for our trespasses, hung on the tree, laid under the stone, and raised for our justification. In other words, by his resurrection, our Lord Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, vindicated, not merely acquitted, but glorified in his righteousness. And this reality This engine room of Christianity, it changes everything. If the only way to be restored to fellowship with God is through the resurrection of his son, then truly nothing else, nothing at all in heaven or earth, nothing matters more. In fact, it means that if my Christian life gets disconnected from the reality of the resurrection, 
I have ceased to follow Jesus as the New Testament understands following Jesus. Now, this is my last point, and it's the encouragement and the challenge that I want to send you away with. Unless my faith is anchored in the reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, I can never fulfill the New Testament's job description of a Christian. I can never be a witness. If you were looking for a single word in the New Testament to sum up the job description of the Christian, this is it. Witness. It's the same word from which we get our English word, martyr. To be a Christian is to bear witness to the Easter proclamation. You may have noticed this theme of witness in our Bible readings this morning. What does the angel tell the women, right? Those apostles to the apostles. Go and tell. Do you think sharing the gospel was difficult for these women? Matthew says, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And then Jesus interrupts them. He meets them on the road. And after they've fallen down and worshipped him, what does Jesus repeat to them? Go and tell. Bear witness. I am alive again. The women fly to the disciples and share the news. John's gospel tells us that John and Peter both sprint at top speed to the tomb. And both disciples learned that to be a Christian means to be a witness to the good news of the Easter proclamation. Later in the New Testament, John writes, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Here is a disciple bearing witness to the resurrection. Or look at Peter's sermon from Acts 10, our New Testament reading this morning. Here's Peter before Cornelius, this, um, this God-fearing Gentile, surrounded by his friends and family. In the space of five verses, Peter drives home the point about bearing witness to the resurrected Jesus four times. Let me read this and uh, flag this up for you, beginning at Acts chapter 10, verse 39. Peter's now warmed up. He's halfway into his sermon. I'm farther along in mine. Don't worry. Here we go. Acts, 30, uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 39. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify, to bear witness that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness. Here is a disciple bearing witness to the resurrection. Now why? Again, why? Why the fuss? What's the big deal about the resurrection? Acts chapter 10, verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
on the cross, we see God's verdict on sin and the judgment that we deserve was set on full display. The cross was God's final no to sin. Why the big fuss about the resurrection? Because the good news of the resurrection is that God's final answer to sin is no, but his final answer to his human creatures is a resounding yes. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. So how do you move from being under God's no to receiving God's yes? This is something that your reason, your conscience, your imagination cannot do. These are good gifts, and they are muddied and clouded and warped and insufficient. So how do you do it? How do you get God's yes in your life? Exactly as Peter says to Cornelius, his family, and his friends. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What does Cornelius, what do his family and friends turn around and do? They put their trust in Jesus. They respond. If you have never put your trust in Christ before, or if you need to return to him after a long estrangement, in just a moment I'm going to pray a prayer which includes several verses from Psalm 51. That's a prayer of repentance from one of the Old Testament's great saints and sinners, King David. If this morning is the morning that you're desiring to receive God's yes in your life, then please join me as I pray this prayer. Tell God that you want this forgiveness that comes through Jesus' name. And if you do trust in Jesus, recommit your heart to him by faith. For your growth in his likeness will come by the very same means that you received forgiveness by at first. His abundant mercies and grace. I'm going to pray this prayer now. And after each sentence, I'm going to leave enough time for anyone who wants to repeat this silently or aloud to do so. This is not manipulation. This is an invitation to receive the word of grace, to make sense of everything that your reason, your conscience, your imagination, your experience of the world has been telling you. Let's pray. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. Thank you, my maker, for calling me back to you. I turn away from my worship of myself. I turn away from the ways I have ignored you. I trust that Jesus is enough. Enough to erase my sin. Enough to make me pure. Enough to restore me to you. I pray this all in his name.